guys can be seated. Well, good morning. It's really good to see all of you guys today, and I'd like to welcome our virtual crowd as well. We're thankful that you have the ability to tune in in that way. Um, good morning, Miss Lynn. How are you today? Doing good? Good. It's good to see you also. Um, if you have your Bible this morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And, and for those of you that may be tuning in for the first time or maybe here for the first time, we, we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so this is where we find ourselves in the Exodus story. And we've been in Exodus for quite a few months now. Um, just leaving Exodus chapter 20, probably one of the more famous chapters of the book of Exodus where God comes down and meets with His people on Mount Sinai and gives them the Ten Commandments. And we dealt last week with the people's response to that and that they um, actually retreat from the Lord. There is a fear that they have of God, but as Moses confronts that fear and tells them to fear not, that it, it's, it's actually not a fear that is to be desired. It's a sinful fear. And so we saw last week in the context of being God's people, any fear that causes us to withdraw from the Lord is, in fact, a sinful fear and, and a right fear of God has has a proper respect and produces a proper worship of Him. But the message of Scripture from God to His people, praise Him for this, is always come to me. And so this morning we'll start in chapter 21. And chapter 21 is the beginning of what Exodus 24 describes as the book of the covenant. Now, 21 through 23 are just a lot of different civil laws and some moral laws, um, but this is still God's Word, okay? And, and so we believe here at, um, at, at, at our church that... God's Word, every, every ounce of it is inspired by Him and has authority in our lives and is inerrant in every way that it possibly can be. And so when I read this, or maybe you've already read it, you're going to go, wow, that might have been a section we should just sort of skim through, or maybe we should have just taken 21 and 23 and just kind of lumped them together and... Um, you know, just had some specific topics that we brought out of it. And, and we do that on occasion. But here we are with these 11 verses before us today. And it is because of God's providence that we have this before us. And it's because of God's providence that you are hearing this today. And so read with me and hear the word of the Lord. Exodus 21, 1 through 11. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall do with her as with a daughter. 
If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is a privilege um, that you've allowed us to gather this morning in your name. We're grateful for that. Lord, it is true also that we need you every moment of every day. I know for me that's often overlooked, but it's never overlooked in this moment, at least for me, on Sundays. And the truth is we need you every Sunday, but this Sunday, Lord, I ask that your Spirit would teach us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to sift through our understanding and our history and what comes to our mind when we hear words like slavery. There's great tension in our land and in this world around these type topics. But Lord, we want to be faithful to your text. We want to be faithful to your scripture because we believe that it is profitable for us. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with us. I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to the truth. And Lord, if you will, I pray that we see a clear, a clear gospel application and understanding at the end of this service. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, not only is this a section of the Bible that we are likely to skim past, it, it's also one that may not, I'm sorry, that we may not particularly like upon our, our first reading. And, and I don't think it's a secret as to why that is. I mean, when we read the word slavery, we probably have pictures in our minds. We probably have uh, movies and television shows and pictures in history books that pop in our mind. And I want to be clear about this up front. And I will say this a couple of times during our time together this morning. So it will be redundant, but it's for the sake of clarity. We need to be aware of the horrific slavery that is in our past. What happened on this continent in regards to Slavery was deeply sinful, and it was demeaning, and it was dehumanizing. And the effects of that are still lingering in this land today. But having said that, it isn't very helpful for the, that understanding of what slavery is to be brought into this section of the Bible. And so we shouldn't let our preconceived notions or what our understanding of slavery is inform Scripture. Instead, we should be able to and be willing to step back and have a better understanding of what this word means in Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. So what I'd like to do this morning is I want to start off by giving you some, some history. And, and it's not just American history. There will be some American history towards the end, but I want to give you, um, in, in a brief amount of time, it's obviously going to be um, you know, a pretty quick deal, so it won't be comprehensive, but I want to give you um, a history of uh, the, the world. Because throughout human history, slavery has been a near constant. And so once we look at some of this history, then we're going to go back to the scripture and take it a verse at a time. And then Lord willing, at the end, we'll have a gospel application and understanding of this section of scripture. 
And so we know the cruelties associated with the transatlantic slave trade. If, if you've spent any time in history class, whether maybe in elementary school, but certainly in middle school and certainly in high school, and maybe if you went on in college to take history or to major in history, which I know we even have um, Tori back here. It makes me feel really inadequate to be standing up here because she basically has every ounce of history in her brain at all times. So correct me afterwards, Tori, please. No, I'm kidding. All right. So, but you've heard of the transatlantic slave trade of the 16th through the 19th centuries. But I think we're less familiar with what slavery looked like elsewhere. And what I mean by elsewhere is um, beyond this continent that we're on. For instance, a million Europeans were enslaved by North African pirates from over the same time period. So from the 16th to the 19th century, it's estimated over a million Europeans were enslaved by North Africans. During the Middle Ages, the Slavic people, or Slavs, were so frequently enslaved by other Europeans, and sometimes Muslim countries, that they coined the word slave from Slav. Slavery existed among Asians and Polynesians in China, in India, among Africans, and in the Western Hemisphere long before Europeans arrived. For most of history, and this is interesting, people tended to enslave those who were like them. Asians enslaved Asians, Africans enslaved Africans, people in the Western Hemisphere enslaved others in the Western Hemisphere, Europeans enslaved Europeans. And even at times during the Middle Ages, Christians were enslaved by stronger Muslim nations. But by and large, it was not until the modern colonial period that slavery began to take on ethnic tensions. Now, when I say ethnic tensions, a more modern word would be racism. But I I personally don't like to use the word racism, and I've shared that with you before because I think coming from a biblical worldview, the Bible is crystal clear that there is one race, that every human being is part of the same race and has the same dignity and has the same value having been made in the image of God. And so even though racism is, is, is a, a, a term that has been socially constructed, it is useful in, in understanding and communicating things, but I think it's important for us coming from a biblical worldview to really be concise and be clear about what we mean by our definition. So I say ethnic tensions. In particular, it was when white Europeans settled in the Americas and began enslaving black Africans in large numbers that slavery took on a racial caste. It's not true across the board, but this is vitally important. But in many ways, you could say that ethnic partiality or racism as a result rather than a cause of slavery. So slavery did not begin on this continent because a certain group of people set out to hate another group of people. That was the result. And the horror came as a result of generations of people being in a, in a lower class or viewed in a lower class as another people group. So by the beginning of the American colonies, the transatlantic slave trade was the vital link connecting Europe, North Africa, and North and South America. Now listen to these numbers. Nearly 11 million Africans in total landed in the Americas as slaves. That's North and South America. Usually they were enslaved and sold by other Africans, sometimes on their own initiative and sometimes on that of these European firms that made profit or made money from selling these African slaves. But the most common point of landing 
was Brazil. And so out of the 11 million estimated African slaves that landed in the Americas, 4.8 million of those slaves landed in Brazil. The next most common ports, and it's in this order from greatest to least, was the British Caribbean, Spanish America, the French Caribbean, and mainland North America. And it's in that order. It's estimated that 388,000 slaves landed here on this continent over the course of the slave trade. By 1860, there was a census given, and at that time on this continent, there was an estimated 4 million slaves in the United States. So what began as a relatively small number, considering the 11 million number, 388,000 originally came over here on this continent. The, the, the growth of the slave population was not because they were continued to be bought, but it was because of reproduction. And so while the severity of the slavery varied from place to place, some were somewhat familial arrangements, while others were extremely cruel. The fact is that it existed because people were forcibly taken, sold, and transported or raised against their will to be slaves. And again, this is a moment of emphasis, and I've already said it once, but I hope that we can all agree that slavery is a blight on our nation's history and that the ethnic tensions it produced continues to have large, lingering effects. The slavery that was experienced on this continent was deeply sinful. Deeply sinful. But I felt like it was important for us because we're bringing something to the table. We're bringing our own understanding and our own baggage to the table. And I thought it would be helpful to have sort of an overview of the world history of slavery and to know that by and large, this has been a near constant throughout human history. It didn't just begin when Europeans began enslaving black Africans. Now, slavery in the ancient world, coming back to Exodus, could refer to a variety of economic relationships. In, in fact, the Hebrew word that we're going to be looking at today used here is the word ebed, E-B-E-D, if you want to jot that down, which could refer to a slave, it could refer to a servant, a bondservant, or even an employee. Now, I want to show you something that you may not know. First, did you know that your Bible has a preface? Did you know that? Well, if you didn't, it does. And if you have an ESV, I'd like for you to turn there. And there's a, a, a section with a subheading, the translation of specialized terms. And in my Bible, it's the third one that's brought up. And I want to read this to you just so you understand more of what we're dealing with and how the translators approach this particular word given the history that we have. And so mine is under the translation of specialized terms, and it's number three. A particular difficulty is presented when words in Biblical Hebrew and Greek refer to ancient practices and institutions that do not correspond directly to those in the modern world. Such is the case in the translation of the word Ibed Hebrew and Dulos Greek, terms which are often rendered slave. These terms, however, actually cover a range of relationships that require a range of renderings, either slave, bondservant, or servant depending on the context. Further, the word slave currently carries associations with the often brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery in the 19th century America. 
for this reason, the ESV translation of the words ebed and doulos have been undertaken with particular attention to their meaning in each specific context. Thus, in Old Testament times, one might enter slavery either voluntarily or involuntarily. Protection for all in servitude in ancient Israel was provided by the Mosaic Law. That's what we'll begin to see this morning. In New Testament times, a doulos is often described as a bondservant. That is, as someone bound to serve his master for a specific period of time. But also as someone who might nevertheless own property, achieve social advancement, and even be released or purchase his freedom. The ESV usage thus seeks to express the nuance of meaning in each context. Whether absolute ownership by a master is in view, as in Romans 6, where slave is used. Where a more limited form of servitude is in view, bond servant, as used in 1 Corinthians 7. Where the context indicates a wide range of freedom, as in John 4, the word servant is preferred. Footnotes, it goes on to say, footnotes are generally provided to identify the Hebrew or Greek and the range of meaning that these terms may carry in each use. So you see that even the modern English translators have not approached this particular word or this thought carelessly. And it's because, it's because of the history that we have. And so they want there to be a tremendous amount of clarity in how we approach this. And I think that we should approach it with clarity. We should approach it not with just our preconceived understanding. Because many people do reject Scripture all out. And therefore reject the Gospel because they believe that the Bible condones slavery. But I hope we see this morning that that is not actually the case. And so, let's look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Now let's pause. Let, let's be fair. This whole story has been about the Hebrews being rescued from what? Slavery. And the first sentence in the book of the covenant is, When you buy a Hebrew slave. There's some irony. Right? And, but, but that should be our first clue. Our first clue should be, okay, okay, so he's clearly talking about two different things here. There's clearly two different types of slavery. There's one that the Lord forbids and one type that the Lord has rescued his people from, which is exactly what he's done at the beginning of Exodus. And that's what this story is ultimately about. The, the slavery that the Israelites were under with the Egyptians was dehumanizing. It was degrading. It was oppressive. And it was demeaning. And the Lord rescued his people out of that. Okay, And, and so the Bible does not condone that type of slavery. But there is a type of slavery that they are commanded to function in. And the Bible doesn't condone, but it does greatly restrain and I think even humanize. But there were three ways that a Hebrew could become a slave of another Hebrew. The Hebrews were not to be slaves of foreigners. Hebrews could only be slaves of other Hebrews. And there were three ways that that came about. The first way is it could be a punishment for wrongdoing. If you want to jot down Exodus 22 verse 2, we'll see that in a couple of weeks. That is one way you could become a Hebrew slave as a punishment. The second way, kids are going to love this, you could also be sold by your parents. How does that sound, kids? I see it on Abby's face. She's thinking, man, dad can make a lot of money. Six kids. 
And it sounds because of what we bring to the table, okay, because of our history, because we think of selling your children, we automatically think of negative things. And that's fair because it typically has negative connotation. It sounds like an absolutely cruel thing for a parent to do. But in their culture, it was actually done to try to give a son or daughter a better chance at life. It was seen as an act of mercy in most cases, and it wasn't as if the children were shipped off kicking and screaming. In some cases, and we don't know this for sure, but in some cases it was even it, with the, I mean, the children could inform the decision. The, the people that the parents may sell the child to would be because of a particular gift set that the child showed. And so they would enter into a work relationship with this master based on their gift set. And so it was ultimately for their good. They weren't selling their kids to get rich quick. It's just the way their culture functioned and the way that it works so that they may have a better life. There was a third way a Hebrew could become a Hebrew slave, and it's found in Leviticus 25, and they could sell themselves into slavery. Now, again, with our westernized thinking, with our brave heart mentality, we think who, with any dignity, would sell themselves into slavery? So it's a fair question. Why would someone do this? In their culture, it would be because they have no other option. They could be up to their eyeballs in debt and could not pay off their creditor. They could be destitute. They could be impoverished. They could be starving. And so the right thing to do would be to sell yourself as a slave. Now, again, that language, just because it has this cloud over it, like I get it. But let's think about it in, in our terms and in a more modern way. If we have a lot of debt, if we are hungry or our family is hungry, then it would make sense and it would be logical for us to get another job. Right? You don't sit back and expect to be fed without working. You don't sit back and expect things to be like to get better for you if you have a lot of debt, unless you're willing to do what's necessary to relieve that debt. And so that was one way, another way that you could become a slave. And it sounds wild for somebody to sell themselves into slavery, but when you sit back and think about it, and that's that's the main thing I want us to do in the first part of this message, is I want us to be fair and to think critically about this context. Now, I do think it's important to point out that the first thing the Mosaic Law says about slavery is a statement about what? When you go free. It doesn't begin saying, let's talk about slavery, let's talk about how much you can pay for them, let's talk about where you can get the best ones. The first thing that it mentions is when the slaves get to leave. Again, that's not necessarily a big deal, maybe to you, but that is a little clue or insight as to what the purpose of this slavery was. This would be similar to some sort of employee or employer contract. It could be similar to a military contract where you have to serve a certain number of years and you agree to give your services. And at the end of that time, you're free to go or you can stay. Look at verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 through 6, what we're going to see are rules for male slaves. And in verses 7 through 11, we'll see rules for female slaves. So look at 3 and 4. The male slave, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he 
shall go out alone. So you see a basic principle, and it's self-explanatory. If the man comes in single, then he is to go out single. If he comes in married, he is to leave married. But then there's a catch in verse 4. And if you look down with me again at verse 4, if the master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. That again, you look at that and you go, this is barbaric. Like how is this fair? How is this right? But what it's trying to protect is the owner's investment. Again, this investment was not all about the owner's wealth. It wasn't all about the owner's power. This was an investment that the owner made that was a mutual benefit to the slave that would come in. Okay? But the reason that this is in the Mosaic Law is because, just for example, let's say that Jared is a brand new slave in this family and Miss Lauren has been a slave in this family for five and a half years. Jared and Lauren meet and Jared thinks Lauren's pretty. And so Jared starts to talk to Lauren and he says, hey, so how long have you been here? And she says, well, I've been here for five and a half years. And he says, well, I just got here last month. Hey, look. It seems like we like each other, but it could benefit both of us like if we go ahead and get married because you're going to be out of here in six months and I won't have to stay the full six years. And so that evidently was a thing. And so the Mosaic Law says that's not how it works. But look on at verses 5 and 6. But if the slave plainly says, now if you underline or highlight, we're going to come back to this at the end. This next phrase, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. If he says that, then there's this ceremony. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So, so the slave could choose to join his family and stay. Again, with our westernized thinking, we think, who would do that? Who with any sort of dignity would choose to stay and remain a slave? But that's because we're thinking of slave in the, in the most harsh and strict and sinful terms. For them in this culture, it was very likely, it was very likely that this slave would come to the end of his time and look at his master and say, You've brought me in for six years. You've treated me well when I had nothing. You've taught me a trade and helped me to understand the harvest. Now I have food. Because of you. Now I have a home because of you. Now I have a wife and I have kids because of you. And, and look his master in the eye and say, I don't want to leave. And if that was the case, this ceremony ensued. And this ceremony, I admit, it's weird, okay? It is a, it's a weird ceremony. It's not something that we would do today. Um, but I think part of its weirdness and in, in, in how intentional they were about it was to make sure that this wasn't just some sort of emotional decision. Like, let's be, if you're going to go let a dude pierce your ear with an awl through and then stick it in the doorpost as a sign of the covenant, then you're actually serious about this. And somebody who wasn't serious about this might get to that point and go, nah, I'm out, man. But the first step of the process was the master would bring the slave before God. And what that looked like is he brought them before the elders. And this was showing the significance of the vow. The second step would show the significance of the covenant. And that is when they would come to the doorpost. And this was representative of if this slave, because he loves his master and he loves his wife and he loves his children, chooses to stay, then they come to the doorpost of the home, which shows that now this is no longer even a slave, but a part of the family. And then there would be blood, of course, because of the type ceremony that it was, and the bloodshed, and the bloodshed even being on the doorposts sealed the covenant. 
And it all hinges on one word that's found in verse 5, and it's love. So because of the love that the slave has for his master and his family, he wants to stay, and he wants the relationship to be extended. He has no desire to leave. Verse 7 begins the rules for female slaves. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Now, so after the six years, the female slave was not free to leave. Ladies, I feel the tension. It's rising up. And honestly, critics of Scripture look at these kind of verses and they say, see, the Bible is sexist. It has a demeaning view of women, but there's more that's going on here. And that, in fact, is, in my opinion, a lazy approach to understanding what's going on here. The females were not typically purchased to be employees. They weren't typically purchased to work. And so it wasn't that type of agreement. The females were purchased for marriage. And again, I know that that has a feeling that comes along with it too. But that's only if we assume that this is done in spite and this is done in sin. The parent would not willingly give his daughter away to a family that he felt like wasn't going to benefit her in the long run. And so the daughter's not going necessarily kicking and screaming, not wanting to go. And so the reason that the female slaves were not free to go like the male slaves were is because marriage, which was the purpose of her being there, has more permanence than servitude. Then there's three scenarios given in verses 8 through 11. Verse 8, the first scenario. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed, and he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. So the first scenario for the female slaves is that if the, the, the master has purchased her to be his wife, and if he is not pleased with her, and he breaks faith with her, notice that the Mosaic law protects not the master, but it protects the slave, it protects the woman. Verse 8 says that she can be redeemed only by one of her own people. The master was not to sell her to a foreigner or ship her off somewhere. And so, again, the Mosaic law has in mind her well-being, since one of her own people could redeem her. Second scenario, verse 9. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. This is very simple. A master could purchase this female slave and give her to his son in marriage. In that case, she became a daughter. She was not a slave. She was actually part of of the family and received all the benefits that a daughter would receive from this particular family. Third scenario, 10 and 11. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And so if this husband, this master, who has purchased a woman... He no longer provides for her, protects her, and has broken intimacy with her because it was in their culture the husband's responsibility to provide. It was the husband's responsibility to protect. It was the husband's responsibility to be sure that intimacy was maintained in the relationship. If the husband is not providing these things under the Mosaic law, then the woman is free to go because the husband has broken covenant. And she goes out for nothing. 
without payment, there's no redemption price at all. So again, you see that the Mosaic Law has in mind in these three scenarios, not the well-being of the master, but the well-being of the slave. Now, before we finish, I want to quickly mention other verses that will help shape these laws on slavery. So if you have your Bible, turn to the right a few pages to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 15. These are just sort of to put a bow on this section, and then we'll have a gospel application there at the end. If your brother, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. Now listen to what the master is to do. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. So again, you plainly see there that even as the master is to let the slave go, if he chooses to go after the seven years, male or female, if they choose to go after the seven years, then they're not to go empty-handed. The master is to provide for them the best of the best, essentially, so that they continue to have a good life. A couple more pages to your right in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. Now, if you're familiar with the Civil War, then you know that there was one particular law that created enough tension for the Civil War to actually start. And that was the Fugitive Slave Law. There was a law passed by Congress on this continent that made it illegal for a slave to escape. And if that slave was found, even in a state that they could be free... There was a federal law that was passed that those slaves had to be returned to their master and they had to be punished. And it was the tension around that law that actually started the Civil War. But listen to what the Mosaic Law says to that exact same thing. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns wherever it suits him. Listen, you shall not wrong him. So the Mosaic law assumes that if the slave has escaped, there has been mistreatment. There's something that's just not right about it. And so you give the slave the benefit of the doubt. And so if you are working on your land and you have people who work for you and you recognize someone who has escaped or is a fugitive slave, you are not to do what the people on this continent did and to make it a law and send them back and, and make sure they're punished. You're to welcome them in and love them as yourself, essentially. And to treat them in a way of dignity, in a way of respect. And so, yes, it's true that the Mosaic Law does not come out and condemn slavery. It clearly condemns and forbids any sort of activity or action that oppresses or dehumanizes other human beings. But it does not, and this is an argument that critics bring, it does not come out and actually condemn slavery. But I do believe scripturally when you take the time to study it, it greatly, greatly restrains it and humanizes it. But to be clear, friends, Exodus is not mainly a story about freedom. I think we read the Exodus account and we imagine ourselves and our Hebrew brothers and sisters in the movie Braveheart, right? 
running out and screaming for our freedom. But that is a westernized way of thinking. And it's not exactly how the Exodus is described by Moses. Do you remember a few months back in the famous words, Moses says, Thus says the Lord, he says this to Pharaoh, Let my people go. But do you remember what comes after that? Let my people go that they may serve me. And so Exodus is not about freedom in the sense that we, and this is dangerous, friends, that we on this continent think about freedom. We think about freedom as an absolute autonomy, meaning that we're free to do whatever we want to do. And that is not only a dangerous way to live in a civilized society, but it's also a very dangerous way to think in terms of the gospel. The Exodus is not about the Israelites having ultimate freedom. The Exodus is about the transfer of allegiance from one master to another. And if you read slave history, then you see plainly the experience of the slave is completely dependent on who? The master. In Romans chapter 6, if you want to turn there, it's not going to be on the screen. Paul argues this argument as it relates to the gospel. And as you turn there, I want to let you know that if you are a born-again believer this morning, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have been freed, but you have not been freed to do whatever you want to do. What's true of the Israelites in the Exodus story is true of us today. If we have been saved from the, the horrible master of sin in our lives, we have not been saved from that master to go live any way that we want to live. And that's Paul's argument in Romans 6. He says, no, there's been a transfer of allegiance. You had a bad master that wanted to lead you to death in sin, and now that allegiance has been transferred to a good master who has your well-being in mind and is committed to protect you and to provide provide for you and to keep you. So in Ex I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, listen to how Paul uses this language. You want to listen for words like obey. You want to listen for words like um, dominion. And you see this same type of language that we've seen in Exodus. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Listen, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. In verse 15, he anticipates this question. Maybe he's heard it. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? You see what he's dealing with there? He's dealing with this thought of, okay, so grace is really this scandalous. Like, if you're going to preach the grace of the gospel, then, then there is a risk. I mean, God doesn't, I don't believe God takes risk, but we take risk in preaching the true grace of the gospel. And it literally means that we are saved by no effort or righteousness of our own. That it doesn't matter what level of sinner you think you are, you are not beyond the grace and the mercy of God. And so the risk there is that sinners would be tricky, similar to the way they might have been in the time of the Mosaic Law, given with that one particular law. They might be tricky and say, okay, well, I'm going to receive this grace, and I'm free. I'm free from the punishment of my sin, and so because I'm free, I'm going to continue to sin. It's literally like the slave master coming 
or I'm sorry, a Hebrew slave going, you know what, Hebrew slave master, like you've, you treat me really well, you've taught me great, but I'm going to go back to Pharaoh. In Paul's mind, it's, it's, that, it's that ludicrous. And he says, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves, now listen to the irony, but you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, here's the irony, have become slaves of righteousness. You see how this would be puzzling, similar to what we read in Exodus. Like, okay, God freed them from sin, and then the first line of the um, Law of the Covenant is, when you buy a Hebrew slave. Like, it, there, there seems to be some irony there, and it's the same type of language that Paul uses. That you've been set free from sin, but now you're a slave to righteousness. And he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now what you have been set free from, sin, and have become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. Brothers and sisters, if you have trusted Jesus this morning, the truth of the gospel is, is that we are redeemed. We're saved. We have been set free from the terrible slave master of sin. A slave master that desires our death, that wants to keep us entangled, that wants us to feel the full brunt and the full punishment that our sin deserves. But praise be to God, Jesus himself came and lived in our place, and he died in our place, he was buried in our place, and he resurrected in our place so that we could be freed from that horrific slave master that is sin. But we're not freed in the gospel to live any way that we want to live. It's a transfer of allegiance. It's not to some absolute autonomy, but to finally having a Lord and a master who loves you. And who leads you to say the same thing that the slave said in verse 5 of Exodus 21. You remember that? I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I love what this master has given me. And I don't want to leave. I don't know if you're familiar or have ever heard of the Heidelberg Catechism. But the first question that's asked, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer, that you are not your own. And I know that that is anti-everything in the world. The world tells us that our battle cry of freedom is that I am my own. But the gospel says that our greatest freedom is found when we realize that we are not our own. And we can say from the depths of our hearts, God, I am yours. Friends, there's still temptation all around us. Um, that old master is still present in our lives. That old master still desires to entangle us, 
to scheme us and to drag us into the horror of what it meant to be a slave to him. But I pray, I, I pray that maybe this morning and walking through this in the way that we have has helped you see and understand that you have a good master. And we have a savior and one that has freed us. And, and the main way that he's freed us is he's freed us to obey him. He hasn't freed us to be our own. He's freed us to actually be his. And so I pray this morning that you can say with me, no, God, I am yours. I love my master and I want to stay forever. Let's pray. Father, as we close our time um, in response to you by taking communion, Lord, I pray that we would evaluate our hearts. Lord, I have to think that maybe someone listening or someone here today is considering or has gone back to this old master. Oh, Father, let us see the horrors of that. Let us see what a good master you are and that you have provided a place and that as we respond to you in communion, you aren't in inviting us to an altar as we saw last week. The, the ultimate sacrifice has been made, but the gospel invites us to a table as a part of your family. That now we're free to be your sons and we're free to be your daughters and we're actually free to obey you and bring you glory. So, Father, I ask that your spirit would move among us in these final moments. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.